Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A gruesome tale of jealousy and murder. She's all battered up. She's bruised. It looked like she had been in the fight of her life. The stunning secret of a racing champion. His early leads out of Starting Gate seem too good to be true. And a barbarous beast that stalks the South. She says the eyes burn like the depths of hell. Within the walls of great institutions lie secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. Florence, Arizona. This austere, sun-drenched landscape played backdrop to what was once a rowdy western town. And dedicated to collecting and preserving the history of the area is the Pinall County Historical Society Museum. The museum proudly displays a variety of relics from the region's outlaw days, including saddles from local cowboys, barbed wire from area ranches, and furniture built from homegrown saguaro cactus. But one glass case conceals an artifact that appears to have little to do with the Wild West. This is a very sweet little thing. It's very soft, it's made out of wool. It's really cuddly, and it's something that you'd like to have in your house. Yet this innocent child's toy is a reminder of a salacious crime that fascinated the country. They covered this story like white on rice. I mean, it was unbelievable. How is this handcrafted doll linked to one of the most sensational criminal cases of the 1930s? Monday, October 19, 1931. Central Station, Los Angeles. As the morning rush hour dies down, a station agent notices two unclaimed trunks from an inbound Phoenix train. And there's something strange, even sickening, about them. The luggage is leaking. There's flies all over the place, and there's this puddle of red stuff underneath the trunk. The agent sends for a policeman, and when the officer picks the lock, he makes a macabre discovery. He jumps back so hard, the lid slams back down. Because what he's looking at is a woman's body 
that is shoved into this trunk, a head in one end and the feet down on the other end. And the contents of the second trunk are just as horrible. The dismembered remains of another female, cut with surgical precision. Police estimate the corpses were dismembered within hours of their deaths. They determined the cause of death to be gunshot wounds. Working with Arizona police, California investigators soon identify the victims as 24-year-old Hedvig Samuelson and 32-year-old Anne Leroy. And it seems the women shared an address. The victims live in the same house together. They're sharing a bungalow. Upon studying the baggage's claim checks, investigators discover the trunks belong to a 26-year-old Phoenix passenger named Winnie Ruth Judd. The investigators quickly discover that Winnie Ruth Judd had been roommates with these women, that she worked with Anne Leroy, that they were friends, that they all ran in the same kind of circle. Authorities are eager to question Judd, but the young woman is nowhere to be found. Yet four days later, Judd staggers into the Los Angeles Sheriff's Office. The petite, doe-eyed woman looks like she hasn't slept or eaten for days. She's all battered up. She's bruised. She's got a hand is wounded. It looked like she had been in the fight of her life. Judd tells police her attackers were none other than her deceased friends, Anne Leroy and Hedvig Samuelson, who ganged up on her with a gun during a violent argument. She was saying, you know, we had this fight about a friend, and they came at me, and they're hitting me, and they had the gun, and I had to fight for the gun. As Judd lunged for the weapon, she says it went off, sending a bullet into her left hand. Yet she still managed to gain control of the gun, turn it on her attackers, and fire. She says, I was fighting for my life. I killed in self-defense. But investigators find Judd's story lacking. The main question is, okay, so why in the world do you have the trunks, and why in the world are you here in Los Angeles? How does this make any sense? And she has no answer for this. The authorities delve into Judd's background and soon uncover the name of a man linked both to the accused murderess and her alleged victims. His name is Jack Halloran. Jack Halloran was a family man. He was a pillar of the community. He ran a major construction company in downtown Phoenix. But the handsome 44-year-old has a few secrets. And chief among them is a tempestuous affair with Winnie Ruth Judd. I mean, she was physically and emotionally in love with this man. Investigators learn that Judd introduced her lover to Samuelson and Leroy and invited him over to the bungalow they shared to socialize. He's a frequent visitor at this house, and he brings other businessmen in town over to see him. And this house becomes a party house in Phoenix. But Judd became jealous when Halloran showered the roommates with gifts. Sammy and Anne had a real vested interest in keeping Jack Halloran on the line. Whether he was romantically involved with them or not, he was providing a lot of money, he was providing booze. Investigators think that on the night of the shootings, that jealousy drove Judd to kill. After the victims lay dead, they theorize Judd shot herself in the hand to make it look like self-defense before fleeing Phoenix. The gruesome evidence crammed into her luggage. Judd is formally charged with murder and stands trial in January. Within a month, she's found guilty. During her incarceration, Judd occupies her time by sewing elaborate dolls, like this one on display at the Pinall County Historical Society Museum. 
she took up all this handwork as a way of killing a lot of time. Yet in the wake of the trial, a nagging mystery lingers. And the biggest question was, who helped her? You took one look at this tiny little woman and you knew she couldn't handle that trunk. Fifty years after the so-called trunk murders, that question drives Phoenix reporter Jaina Bommersbach to dig for answers. Piecing together archival records and transcripts, she concludes that Judd pulled off the crime solely through the efforts of one man, Jack Halloran. She says that she was told by Halloran, listen, you take these trunks to L.A., I'll have somebody pick you up, they'll take them and they'll throw them out in the ocean, okay? She thought this was an escape plan. She thought he was taking care of her. But if authorities knew of Halloran's role in the hideous crimes, why wasn't he tried as an accomplice? Bombersbach points to the unspoken code of secrecy among Phoenix's good old boys network. The fear was, if Halloran goes down, who else is going to go down with him? How many other gentlemen in the community of Phoenix who have association with these girls are going to be dragged into this thing with him? Bombersbach reasons that rather than bring him down, investigators swept Halloran's involvement under the rug. Winnie Ruth Judd dies in 1998 at the age of 92. But 80 years after her crimes, this handcrafted doll at the Pinall County Historical Society Museum embodies the enigmatic woman behind one of the 20th century's most sensational scandals. Coventry, Connecticut. This town was once home to Revolutionary War hero Nathan Hale, who was raised along the banks of its idyllic lake. And in an old farmhouse is an institution that honors one of the state's earliest industries, the Museum of Connecticut Glass. This utilitarian assortment of 19th century flasks, inkwells, and bottles embodies the sophisticated skill behind glassmaking. But the form of one artifact here goes far beyond functionality. It's about six inches high. It's almost translucent, and it features the molding of a face. And as author Carrie Hagen can attest, this bottle bears a secret message. This artifact might look like a frivolous perfume bottle, but it is really a token of a crime that shocked Americans. How did this piece of glassware come to epitomize a heart-wrenching saga that consumed the nation? Philadelphia. July 1st, 1874. After a long day at work, businessman Christian Ross returns home. He is eager to see his two sons, five-year-old Walter and four-year-old Charlie. But the boys are nowhere to be found. He starts looking through the neighborhood, and all of a sudden he looks up and sees Walter walking towards him. Visibly distressed, the five-year-old tells his father something troubling. Earlier that day, two men in a horse-drawn wagon pulled up in front of the house and offered candy to him and to Charlie. After eating the treats, the strangers offered to take the boys to the sweet shop for more. When they arrived, Walter hopped out to buy the candy. He tells his father that when he returned, the wagon had vanished. He looks back and forth on the street and he doesn't see the wagon with his little brother in it anywhere. Christian Ross immediately alerts police. Yet 48 hours later, Charlie's whereabouts remain a mystery. Finally, three days after the boy's disappearance, 
a chilling clue arrives by post. Christian receives an odd-looking letter. It's written in horrible grammar, and in it he is told, we is got him. We have your child. Come up with $20,000 or never see your son again. The steep sum sends Ross into a panic. Christian Ross does not have $20,000. He is not as wealthy as they assumed he was. To make matters worse, the kidnappers refuse any direct line of contact. They tell Christian that the only way that he can communicate with them is by putting an advertisement in the personal section of the Philadelphia Public Ledger newspaper. On July 8th, he posts an ad accepting the terms. And over the next three weeks, several messages between Ross and the kidnappers are printed in the paper for all to see. They had never heard of somebody demanding money for the return of a child. Soon, editorials were talking about this kidnapping that had happened, and people became very outraged. But after a month of correspondence, Christian Ross appears no closer to bringing Charlie home. Until another handwritten note turns up at his door. The kidnappers tell Christian Ross that on July 31st, he needs to take a train from Philadelphia to New York. They instruct him to bring the $20,000 ransom in a suitcase and stand in the train's last car. As he travels, he must be on the lookout for the kidnappers' signal. He needed to look to see a white flag waving in the air. And when he saw that white flag, he needed to drop the suitcase full of money. On the appointed day, Christian Ross boards the New York-bound train. But there's just one hitch. He doesn't have the money in the suitcase. Inside, he has a note. It informs the kidnappers he must be able to see his son before handing over the money. But will the risky maneuver succeed or put Charlie in greater danger? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's the summer of 1874. Four-year-old Charlie Ross is abducted off the streets of Philadelphia. Investigators working with Charlie's father spring into action as a shocked nation watches in disbelief. So what will come of the desperate search for Charlie Ross? On August 1st, Christian Ross stands on the platform of a New York-bound train waiting for the kidnapper's signal. But it never comes. And 13 hours later, Ross finds himself at the end of the line. Christian arrives and he's still holding the suitcase. He hasn't seen a white flag. Gutted, Christian Ross heads home. Weeks pass, months pass, and Charlie's not returned. Police keep up the search with a rare measure, allowing citizens the right to arrest anyone suspected of harboring the child. So suspicion was everywhere. People on the street were questioning mothers of little boys that looked like Charlie. And street children were coming forward saying they were Charlie in the hopes of claiming some of the reward. When the tactic fails to bring Charlie home, a local business comes up with a unique way to keep the case fresh in people's minds. A perfume company decides to put the face of Charlie Ross on one of its bottles. The bottles bearing Charlie's likeness like this one on display at the Museum of Connecticut Glass, are a 19th century precursor to a modern practice. This sows the seeds of putting the face of missing children on milk cartons. The search for Charlie continues for more than half a century. Sadly, Charlie was never found. Some theorize he was raised by his kidnapper's family, eventually forgetting his true identity. It's also very possible that the kidnappers killed him when they realized that they wouldn't be able to get their money and get away with it. In the end, the chilling tale of abduction gives rise to the still common cautionary phrase, don't take candy from strangers. Today, this bottle of perfume at the Museum of Connecticut Glass recalls the sweet-faced boy whose tragic disappearance taught Americans this heartbreaking lesson. Portland, Maine. In 1866, this town was leveled by a massive fire. Yet it rose from the ashes like the mythological phoenix, which appears on the city's seal. And in the heart of this resilient community is an institution dedicated to other legendary creatures, the International Cryptozoology Museum. Inside, visitors can marvel at bizarre beasts that have allegedly stalked and haunted the American landscape. But one object on display appears far from fantastical. The object is five and a half inches tall, eight inches long. It's made of metal, and it is attached to a piece of wood. As director Lauren Coleman can attest, what came into view beyond this wire mesh shocked and terrified the nation. People who saw this thing couldn't believe their eyes. What horrifying incident played out beyond this window screen? 1964, 
Falk, Arkansas. Teenager Mary Beth Searcy is settling in for a night of schoolwork when a chill suddenly enters the room. She stands up to close the window when she notices something strange. Mary Beth looks out, sees the moonlit front yard, and all of a sudden out of the edge of the forest, Mary Beth sees this hairy creature walking on two legs coming towards her. A horrified Cersei recoils in terror. She's frightened to death. And she spends the rest of her night staring in dread at the screen window, a piece of which is on display at the International Cryptozoology Museum. Spring, 1971. 25-year-old Bobby Ford and his wife Elizabeth have recently moved into a new home. One evening, Bobby heads out on a hunting trip, leaving Elizabeth alone. And just as she's falling asleep, something startles her out of her slumber. All of a sudden, Elizabeth woke up and she saw the curtain moving on the window. As she moves closer to inspect, she soon realizes it's more than just the wind. There's an arm coming towards her and she all of a sudden sees its eyes. Elizabeth retreats in horror and the creature disappears back into the night. Elizabeth was trembling. She kept thinking, what is this? What is this? Later that evening, Bobby returns home to his terrified wife, who describes her encounter with this horrific beast. She says the eyes burn like the depths of hell. Worried it may return to attack his wife, Bobby grabs his gun and goes in search of the monster. Then he spots it. A shaggy-haired, dagger-clawed, seven-foot creature. He immediately fires. As the beast runs off, Bobby chases it into the darkness. But then he hears Elizabeth shriek. Bobby scards his gun, races towards his wife. He thought that the monster had her in its grip. As Bobby runs towards the house, he's suddenly grabbed and thrown to the ground. The monster retreats back into the swamplands. Bobby reports the harrowing encounter to local authorities. What the law enforcement officials found were actual pieces of the house had been ripped away. But most telling of all, they discover three toad tracks measuring an astonishing 17 inches long by seven inches wide. In the months that follow, more people have run-ins with the massive, hairy, red-eyed beast. There actually have been hundreds of sightings in the Falk area by respectable, credible eyewitnesses. But many wonder if the monster is actually some kind of big cat. In the Falk area, there are reports of mountain lions. There are also reports of black panthers. These felines are capable of leaving deep claw marks in the frames of houses and have eyes that glow when caught in a beam of light. But many Falk residents don't accept this explanation and point to a unique feature of the beast. All of the reports talk about an upright creature walking for a long amount of time. Others posit that the monster's description tracks closely to that of a black bear. Black bears are dark, they're hairy, they're broad-chested, and they reach about six feet in height if they're on their back feet. But black bears have five toes, and the footprints found only three. 
Unable to tie the creature to any known living animal, many theorize it could be a new species altogether. The local people in Falk know this creature exists. What it is remains a mystery. The legend of the Falk monster lives on at the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine, where this piece of screen stands as a reminder of the hairy beast that may still be lurking in the swamps of Arkansas, poised to strike again. Akron, Ohio. Perched along six major highways, the city moves at 70 miles an hour. And the quest for speed is at the very heart of one of the city's notable institutions, the All-American Soapbox Derby Hall of Fame Museum. On display are over 100 gravity-powered racers that have taken top prize at one of the world's most unique competitions. The All-American Soapbox Derby is absolutely the greatest amateur racing event in the world. And among these handcrafted racers sits a car whose outward appearance seems to blend in with the rest. The artifact is 40 years old. It's green in color. It's got four wheels, and it's a former world champion. Yet museum director Bobby Dinkins asserts that this racer holds a more dubious claim to fame than its counterparts. It's probably our most famous car for the wrong reasons. How is this innocent-looking racer linked to one of the most memorable scandals in amateur racing history? March 1973. Boulder, Colorado. Engineer Robert Lang helps his 14-year-old nephew, Jimmy Gronin, build what they hope is the ultimate racing machine, a soapbox derby car that will win the All-American World Championships. Every kid's dream, if they were a soapbox derby racer, was to win the All-American race. Soapbox racers are powered solely by gravity and must adhere to strict construction requirements set out by the derby. Just one year earlier, Robert Lang helped his own son Bobby build a champion racer and is convinced he can do the same for his nephew. So they took the same mold that they used to build Bobby's car and used that as a starting point. If they could make it more aerodynamic, less drag on the car, less friction, the car would definitely go faster. After months of tireless refinement, it's finally ready. In August, they head to Akron's Derby Downs, home to the All-American Soapbox Derby World Championship. It's the best gravity racers in the world. To reach the Derby Finals, Jimmy has to first beat out six other drivers in head-to-head matchups. As race time approaches, Jimmy climbs into this car on display at the All-American Soapbox Derby Hall of Fame and positions himself behind the metal starting gate. The starting gate works as a mechanism to hold the cars in place, and then once the starting gates go down, gravity pulls them down to the end of the track. It takes most gravity racers several seconds to build speed. But incredibly, the instant the metal gate drops, Jimmy's car leaps into the lead, flying down the track at 35 miles an hour. He won. He won by a number of car lengths. The size of Jimmy's lead leaves the crowd awestruck. Typically, soapbox derby racers win by a small margin. When cars win by a large margin, it's definitely an astonishing feat. But if spectators assume the big win was beginner's luck, they're mistaken. Heat after heat, Jimmy's car soars down the hill. No other car was able to take the lead at the starting gate throughout the day against Jimmy. 
By the time he reaches the finals, it seems nothing can stop his winning streak. Sure enough, he plummets past his opponent and across the finish line, claiming the victory he coveted. Jimmy Gronin became the world champion of the All-American Soapbox Derby. But just hours after Jimmy's impressive victory, Derby officials are filled with doubt. Never in the Derby's 37-year history has a car consistently bolted ahead of the others. His early leads out of the starting gate seemed too good to be true. Something was up. The day after the race, organizers make an unprecedented move. They called for review of the car, and they cut the car open. Inside, they find something that shouldn't be there, a hidden cache of metal and wire. And it points them towards an astonishing conclusion. It was a magnet that gave him a competitive advantage over the other children in the race. Derby officials learn the battery-powered magnet is drawn to the metal in the starting gate. So when the gate drops forward at the start of a race, it yanks the car along with it, releasing it down the track like a slingshot. And it turns out this isn't the first time the car's designer, Jimmy's uncle, Robert Lang, was embroiled in controversy. Just a year earlier, spectators voiced similar doubts about the championship car he built for his son. But that car mysteriously disappeared before officials could analyze it. In light of the controversy, Derby organizers strip Jimmy of his title and announce stricter enforcement of the rules. Robert Lang agrees to give $2,000 to a youth charity to atone for his cheating. And this racer, on display at the All-American Soapbox Derby Hall of Fame Museum, embodies the lengths some people are willing to go to be the first across the finish line. Frankfurt, Kentucky. For over a hundred years, these rolling hills marked the gateway to the western frontier. But as tens of thousands of pioneers journeyed west, many families settled in the bluegrass state itself. Helping to chronicle and preserve the state's long and storied lineage is the Kentucky Historical Society. Alongside exhibits of pioneer relics, frontier weapons, and cherished heirlooms, sits the facility's genealogical library. And deep within its stacks, a truly bizarre chapter in Kentucky's history is waiting to be revealed. This artifact is a legal-sized manila folder, roughly under a pound in weight, containing correspondence, photocopies, photographs. According to Sherry Daniels, the contents of this folder speak of something so strange for years, people thought it was a myth. The reaction upon hearing the story for the first time is one of great surprise. I've told people, well, Google it. You'll see pictures of it out there. What does this dossier reveal about a scientific anomaly that defies belief? 1960, Hazard, Kentucky. On a bitterly cold morning, a nurse named Ruth Pendergrass settles into her usual shift at the county health department. But her quotidian routine suddenly comes to a screeching halt when an unusual-looking woman walks in. All of her skin was a, a shade of blue. Her fingernails were blue. Her lips were blue. A bewildered Pendergrass thinks the woman is suffering from severe hypothermia. But to her amazement, the woman says she's fine. In fact, she swears there is nothing particularly unique about her appearance. 
And she said this was a condition she had had all of her life and that she was just one among several of the blue people that lived outside of town. Then the seemingly skittish woman abruptly departs. Desperate for an answer as to the cause of the woman's bizarre condition, Ruth Pendergrass seeks out the one man who may be able to help, Dr. Madison Cowain. Dr. Cowain was a hematologist at the University of Kentucky Hospital. Cowain has long heard rumors of blue people roaming the hills of Kentucky and has been obsessed with learning more about them. So, based on Nurse Pendergrass's account, he decides to stake out the local hospital in the hope that a blue person will return. And after only a short while, his gambit pays off. One day, two people, it turns out they were brother and sister, walk in, and their skin was this shade of blue. Seizing on the lucky break, Kawain approaches the siblings cautiously, hoping not to scare them off. The brother and sister were very embarrassed over their condition, but he eventually gained their trust. And soon, the true purpose of the siblings' hospital visit emerges. They want to be rid of their blue skin once and for all. The siblings reveal their family ancestry to Kuwait, beginning with the amazing tale of an immigrant named Martin Fugate. The patriarch of their family came from France in the 1820s who married a red-headed girl from Kentucky. But when the couple tried to build a family, something surprising happened. They have seven children, and out of the seven children, four of them end up with blue skin. Aside from their bizarre appearances, the children enjoyed healthy, long lives. And the family never sought a medical explanation for the mysterious condition. As the years progressed, not only were there more and more generations born with this condition, but the stories behind this type of condition actually spread. Over time, the prying eyes of curious gawkers drove the families deep into the woods. They were obviously very embarrassed over this, and with each generation, that, that embarrassment grew. But now, with two of the legendary blue people of Kentucky before him, Dr. Cowain believes he can get to the bottom of this century-old mystery once and for all. Based on the family's long history of blue skin, Cowain speculates that the condition isn't environmental, but hereditary. And to confirm his theory, he tests samples of the sibling's blood. He discovered that they were missing an essential enzyme. The enzyme, called diaphorase, is responsible for binding red blood cells with oxygen. Without this enzyme, their blood was not properly oxygenated, and this caused their skin to appear blue. The condition requires both parents to carry not one, but two mutated genes to pass it on to their offspring, an occurrence that should be incredibly rare. But thanks to the region's remoteness and the family's self-imposed exile, the genes were passed down from generation to generation. With the cause finally isolated, Kawain must now develop a cure, and he discovers one in the most unlikely of medicines. The doctor finds a solution in a chemical called methylene blue, which is ironically a blue dye, but also happens to oxygenate the blood. When Kawain administers the unconventional treatment, the results are nearly instantaneous. Right before his eyes, the blue tone turned to a healthy shade of pink. Amazingly, after a century of standing out, the once blue people of Kentucky can now blend in. 
Before long, the bizarre condition that embarrassed the descendants of Martin Fugate into hiding for generations becomes a thing of the past. But their captivating story, preserved in these medical records and articles at the Kentucky Historical Society, remains available to any visitor who means to unlock the sometimes colorful secrets of the human body. Washington, D.C., just miles from the White House, on the banks of the Potomac River, is the Navy's oldest shoreline establishment, the Washington Navy Yard. And on these historic grounds sits an institution dedicated to preserving this military legacy, the National Museum of the U.S. Navy. On display are a long Tom cannon from the War of 1812, a World War II quadruple gun mount, and safety plugs for the nuclear bomb dropped by the Enola Gay. But among these fearsome icons of military might is one artifact that was not used in any war. This object is very heavy. It's 29 tons, 58 feet long. And on the bottom is a sphere with two plexiglass windows that allow you to look inside. According to curator Jennifer Marland, this hulking object attempted one of the most daring marine missions of the 20th century. This craft was built to go to places that no one had gone before. What was this vessel's depth-defying mission? And was it a success? It's 1946 in Switzerland. 62-year-old physicist Auguste Picard has enjoyed a career not only as a scientist, but as a high-flying balloonist, having set an altitude record of over 75,000 feet using a balloon fitted with a pressurized aluminum chamber. But for his next mission, the scientist sets his sights on a far lower realm. Auguste Picard thought, what would it take to, instead of going up, descend into the deepest depths of the ocean? But there's a problem. Even the most armored submarines of the day would be crushed by the uncharted depths. These pressures are over a thousand times greater than the pressures at sea level. To create a vessel capable of withstanding the crushing deep, he modifies his gondola design and, with the help of his son Jacques, swaps out its lightweight aluminum frame for heavily reinforced steel. In 1953, when he unveils the groundbreaking craft, named the Trieste after the Italian town in which it was made, it immediately makes waves. And eager to unlock the scientific mysteries of the ocean deep, the U.S. Navy makes a surprising offer. The Navy decided that they wanted to buy her and bring her to the United States. Realizing he's too old to pilot the craft himself, Picard agrees to sell it under one condition, that his son, Jacques, must be one of the mission's pilots. The Navy agrees. And soon, Jacques Picard and a Navy lieutenant named Donald Walsh set their sights on the lowest point on Earth, off the coast of Guam in the Pacific Ocean, Challenger Deep. Challenger Deep is located 35,814 feet below the surface of the ocean. This is more than a mile deeper than Everest is high above the surface of the Earth. And after years of tests and modifications, 
on January 23, 1960, the two adventurers close the Trieste's hatch and begin their epic seven-mile descent. The first six miles go smoothly, but as the craft lowers to 31,000 feet below sea level, the two men hear a terrifying sound. There was a big bang. The cabin shook as if an explosion had happened outside. Even a tiny crack in the hull could cause a massive implosion that would instantly kill them both. Picard and Walsh find no sign their vessel has been compromised. And with just 4,000 feet separating them from the bottom, they make a daring decision. They were so close, they had to continue down. Their goal was just in sight. Bracing themselves for the worst, they plunge deeper. And it's not long before they reach an incredible 35,800 feet below sea level. At four hours and 48 minutes, they touch bottom. But this historic achievement is just one half of the duo's mission. They had proven that man could go to the deepest depths of the ocean. So after 20 minutes on the bottom, they started the trip up. And now they just had to prove that they could come back alive. The nerve-wracking trip takes three hours and 18 minutes. But when the Trieste finally breaks through the waves, the divers have made history as the first men ever to complete a journey to the lowest known point on Earth. News of their success travels quickly across the globe, and the two pilots become overnight celebrities. Don Walsh and Jacques Picard were flown to Washington, and there they met President Eisenhower to commemorate this amazing accomplishment. And for over half a century, no other men reached the same depth until 2012, when film director James Cameron completes a solo dive to Challenger Deep. In between these two historic dives, 12 people walk on the moon, and yet only three people have gone down to Challenger Deep. Today, the Trieste still hangs on display at the National Museum of the U.S. Navy, documenting the story of the incredible depths mankind explored almost a full decade before reaching the moon. From a missing child to a murderous mistress, a southern Sasquatch to a souped-up soapbox. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.